ketones. We've talked about how we make them, how we use them. Today, we talk about why we make and use ketones. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphc.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our 34th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism, and today we're talking about why we have ketogenesis. What is its physiological purpose? And what we'll see is that the physiological purpose of ketogenesis is to spare the loss of lean mass that would otherwise occur during prolonged fasting. Shown on the screen is a depiction of the blood-brain barrier, which separates, as it sounds like, the blood from the brain. Glucose is able to cross the blood-brain barrier because the blood-brain barrier is rich in GLUT1, which is a glucose transporter that does not require insulin or respond to insulin, but is always expressed and allows glucose to cross the blood-brain barrier through it along its concentration gradient. The blood-brain barrier also expresses MCT1, the monocarboxylate transporter 1, the main transporter of ketones across membranes, and that means that ketones can cross the blood-brain barrier. However, the blood-brain barrier does not express the needed transport mechanisms to get fatty acids across it in appreciable quantities. As such, for all practical purposes, fatty acids cannot cross the blood-brain barrier. That means that glucose and ketones can act as fuels for the brain, but fatty acids cannot. Your brain consumes 100 to 125 grams of glucose every day, providing that you're on a mixed diet. Now, if you were fasting and your brain continued to consume 100 and 125 grams of glucose every day, then after a very short period, one day probably, you're going to be more or less out of glycogen and you are going to have to get all of that glucose from gluconeogenesis. The main source of gluconeogenesis is your protein, which is mostly in your skeletal muscle. If you were to tap into skeletal muscle to fulfill the entire glucose requirement of the brain, it would require 2.2 pounds, one kilogram of lean mass to yield 200 grams of protein, because remember most of your muscles are water and there's some other stuff in there. And that amount of protein is going to yield 120 grams of glucose through gluconeogenesis. That would mean that under prolonged fasting, you would lose 2.2 pounds of muscle mass every day just to fulfill the glucose requirement of the brain. That is unsustainable, and you will die a lot faster if you're fasting and you don't have a way to change this situation. Fortunately, we do have a way to change that situation. It's called ketogenesis. 
You can imagine on a mixed diet, it's almost exclusively glucose that's feeding the brain. During prolonged fasting, the level of ketone utilization in the brain will gradually increase, causing the glucose utilization to decrease until glucose is only supplying 25% of the brain's energy and ketones are providing 75% of the brain's energy. That in and of itself decreases the glucose requirement so much that you will massively slow the loss of lean mass that would otherwise occur during fasting. With that said, you can never, ever bring the glucose requirement of the brain down to zero. And one of the principal reasons is that 5 to 15% of the brain's energy metabolism occurs in astrocytes. Astrocytes are cells that assist neurons, the main cells in your brain. And astrocytes are shaped like what you see on the screen, where they have a center cellular body, and then from that cell body are many long, thin projections. The cell body is big enough to have mitochondria, but the projections are long and thin like strands, and they're not big enough to fit any mitochondria. And because there's no mitochondria in the projections, energy metabolism in the projections of the astrocytes is based almost exclusively on anaerobic glycolysis. As covered in Lesson 15, anaerobic glycolysis is the conversion of glucose to lactate. In Lesson 15, we focused on this occurring during exercise, in which case a lot of that lactate goes through the Cori cycle, where it goes into the blood, it's delivered to the liver, it's turned back into glucose, and the glucose goes back to the muscle. The lactate that's generated during anaerobic glycolysis in astrocytes does not leave the brain to go to the liver for the most part. Almost exclusively what's happening is the astrocyte is delivering the lactate to the neuron. And this way, the ATP generated from anaerobic glycolysis is fueling energy metabolism within the projections, but then the neuron can use the lactate in other ways. That lactate is converted to pyruvate. That pyruvate can undergo cellular respiration, but that pyruvate can also be a source of anaplerosis. In this way, it spares the need for glucose to be used in the neuron for anaplerosis and cellular respiration, and that conserves glucose for use in the pentose phosphate pathway, which is where we get the NADPH needed for antioxidant support as discussed in Lesson 17. You don't want your neurons subject to a lot of oxidative stress that can contribute to neurodegenerative disease, so the ability of lactate to spare this glucose requirement is important. We can see on the whole that 5 to 15% of the brain's energy metabolism occurring in the astrocyte, where most of it is occurring in the projections and occurring through anaerobic glycolysis, means that you will never be able to get rid of the glucose requirement of the brain. Furthermore, even in the neuron where cellular respiration is active, you still have an absolute requirement for glucose to fuel the pentose phosphate pathway, and you need something for anaplerosis, whether it's amino acids or it's glucose or it's pyruvate derived from the lactate. So 
Because of these needs to fuel minor pathways in the neuron and to fuel the major pathway in astrocytes, there will always be some requirement for glucose in the brain. And that is reflected in the fact that even during prolonged fasting, you are only bringing the glucose requirement down to 25% of its original value and not any further than that. During prolonged fasting, you're getting ketones from fatty acids, but fatty acids are held in adipose tissue as triglycerides. Triglycerides have a glycerol backbone and three fatty acids. Glycerol itself is a carbohydrate. And so as you release the fatty acids over the course of fasting, you're also releasing the glycerol. And glycerol can feed directly into gluconeogenesis. Glycerol therefore spares amino acids even further, which is another factor that decreases the loss of lean mass during fasting. Glycerol is only about 10% of the energy in a triglyceride. But you have so much lipolysis occurring during these conditions and so much glycerol that you actually have glycerol competing with amino acids to the point where the glycerol itself provides as much glucose as the totality of the glucogenic amino acids do. On top of this, although poorly recognized and absent from most textbooks, acetone, one of the three ketone bodies, itself can be turned into glucose through a pathway that we'll talk about in later lessons. That acetone has been estimated to provide about seven grams of glucose per day during prolonged fasting compared to 20 grams for amino acids and 20 grams for glycerol. So it's a minor portion, but it's still significantly sparing the need to burn amino acids to make glucose, which again, decreases the amount of lean muscle mass that you must endure per day during prolonged fasting. The data that are on the screen are taken from five obese subjects, three of whom had type two diabetes, two of whom did not, during 21 days of prolonged fasting, also known as starvation, and shouldn't be interpreted as exact numbers. It could be different if we had subjects who weren't obese. You can see different estimates in different studies. This is to give you a general idea of the rough amounts uh, and proportions that you would be using. In addition to the 47 grams of glucose that were synthesized and fully oxidized and consumed every day in this study, there was another 100 grams of glucose that would appear each day through recycling from lactate. And counting it this way, that means you count the glucose molecule as it appears once, it goes to lactate, it goes back to glucose, you count the glucose molecule again. So there was an appearance of an additional 100 grams of glucose per day through lactate recycling. Although I've never seen the glucose requirement by tissues apart from the brain specifically and explicitly quantified in the conditions of prolonged fasting, if we are making 47 grams of glucose per day in those conditions, for example, and if our brain is going from 100 to 120 grams of glucose per day to 25% of that, which is about 25 to 30 grams, then there must be about 15 to 25 grams of glucose that are consumed outside the brain. 
if that's the case, presumably that glucose is being consumed in other tissues that we know require anaerobic glycolysis, such as red blood cells, testes, kidney medulla, lens and cornea of the eye. And although that's being recycled through lactate, recycling it is consuming energy. So a lot of that glucose is likely to be lost from the recycling process and consumed at some point or another. Or maybe the lactate itself would be consumed at some point or another in tissues besides these or in compartments of these tissues that are capable of cellular respiration, which is true for all of them except red blood cells. Or maybe it's being consumed for anaplerosis in a wider variety of tissues. In any case, the minimal glucose requirements during prolonged fasting, based on these studies, appear to be a total of about 45 grams per day, give or take. But we're not yet done talking about how ketogenesis affects the requirement to burn through lean mass during prolonged fasting. One additional factor that we need to consider is that ketone bodies are acidic. You can see on the screen the depiction of acetoacetic acid and beta-hydroxybutyric acid ionizing to form acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate along with hydrogen ions. These processes are reversible and they're always at some equilibrium in any given solution. And so we tend to just refer to these molecules as acetoacetate or beta-hydroxybutyrate because it's easier. It's fewer syllables than saying acetoacetic acid and beta-hydroxybutyric acid. Nevertheless, when we're depicting them ionizing, technically, acetoacetic acid is the acid without having ionized. Once it ionizes, it separates into an, a hydrogen ion, which is the source of the acidity, and the rest of the molecule, which is called the acid's conjugate base. So the conjugate base of acetoacetic acid is acetoacetate, and the conjugate base of beta-hydroxybutyric acid is beta-hydroxybutyrate. These hydrogen ions are acidic. That means they decrease the pH of the blood or any tissues that they're in, and the body needs to respond to that in order to buffer the acidity. One of the responses to that is our respiration, meaning not cellular respiration, but our breathing. In the blood, bicarbonate will combine with those hydrogen ions and become carbon dioxide. Our breathing will speed up a little bit, we'll exhale more of the carbon dioxide in our breath, and that will help return the pH of the blood to normal. That happens very quickly, so you don't actually see the pH in the blood changing, you see the compensation. But respiratory compensation for acidity is not the only form of compensation, and it's not adequate on its own. The kidney also has work to do. One of the tools in the kidney's kit is to use glutamine to make ammonia to buffer the acidity. One of the features of glutamine is that it's one of the two amino acids where in addition to having a carboxyl group and an amino group, like every amino acid has, in its unique side chain, it has a second amino group. That means that it carries two nitrogens instead of one, like most other amino acids. If you hydrolyze the amino group from the side chain of glutamate using the enzyme glutaminase, you will produce glutamate. Glutamate and glutamine are two amino acids. They're exactly the same, except glutamine side chain has an amino group, 
and glutamate side chain does not. It has a carboxyl group. Once you produce glutamate from glutamine, you free ammonia, NH3. Ammonia is basic or alkaline, which means that it sucks up hydrogen ions from solution and becomes the ammonium ion, which is NH4+. In response to the acid burden posed by ketone bodies, the kidney will excrete some of the ketone bodies into the urine. But when it does that, it needs to buffer the acidity of the urine itself. Otherwise, tissues of the kidney could be damaged by the acidity and tissues of the urethra and the surrounding tissues that allow male or female to get rid of that urine could be damaged by the acidity. So for every acetoacetate and or beta-hydroxybutyrate that ionize two hydrogen ions, the kidney will take glutamine, convert it to glutamate, producing one ammonia, and then take the glutamate and deaminate it to alpha-ketoglutarate, producing a second ammonia molecule. Those two ammonia molecules will take the two hydrogen ions, become two ammonium ions, and then they will go into the urine along with the acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. That fulfills two goals. One is that for every negatively charged species you excrete, you also excrete a positively charged species. Electric neutrality, both in the kidney tissue and in the urine. But the other thing it does is, you know, you could have had electric neutrality if you just put the H+, the hydrogen ion, into the urine, but then you would have too much acidity. By putting the ammonia in and sucking up those hydrogen ions to make ammonium ions, you help stabilize the pH of the urine and the surrounding tissues. The alpha-ketoglutarate can then enter the citric acid cycle, and although not shown here, burning the alpha-ketoglutarate for energy in the citric acid cycle allows the production of carbon dioxide, and through additional mechanisms that are not shown here, that carbon dioxide can become the source of bicarbonate ion that is sent back into the bloodstream to to offer additional buffering capacity in the way that we talked about before, where the bicarbonate can then suck up hydrogen ions in the blood and allow exhalation of carbon dioxide in the lungs. But where do you get glutamine from? You have to get glutamine from protein. And under conditions of prolonged fasting, the only place to get that protein is your skeletal muscle mass. So although ketones are by reducing the glucose requirement of the brain, sparing your lean muscle mass, they also put some burden on your lean muscle mass to neutralize the acidity. Thankfully, that burden is smaller than the benefit of reducing the brain's glucose requirement. But that means that ketogenesis is not as perfect a reduction in the need to lose lean mass during fasting as we would have thought had we not considered the acidity. So what does this do in net? Well, first of all, the ketones themselves are reducing the glucose requirement by 75 to 90 grams per day because they're able to fulfill 75% of the brain's glucose requirement or energy requirement. On top of this, fat itself provides sources for gluconeogenesis that displace the need to use amino acids. So the same triglycerides that are generating the ketones that feed the brain are also generating glycerol 
from the backbone of the triglycerides, and some of the ketones, instead of feeding the brain, produce acetone. Glycerol and acetone, by acting as glucogenic precursors, reduce the reliance on protein for gluconeogenesis by about 55%. So you add up reducing the glucose requirement of the brain in a quarter, and then on top of that, you're reducing the need for amino acids by over half, so far we're seeing about a tenfold reduction in the need to use amino acids. But because ketones are a source of acidity and can increase the need for protein catabolism by up to 20 grams per day in order to get that glutamine, that 20 grams per day is basically doubling what you're what you're otherwise using without the acidity, because 20 grams per day is also what you're using to synthesize new glucose. So you're going from 20 grams per day, not considering the acidity, to 40 grams per day. But remember, we said at the beginning that if we were burning through purely skeletal muscle mass to get the glucose requirement of the brain, and if the glucose requirement of the brain did not change during prolonged fasting, we'd be burning through 200 grams of protein. So overall reduction of protein catabolism from 200 grams per day to 40 grams per day is a five-fold reduction in the need to dig into our lean mass during fasting. So there's a proportional reduction in the loss of lean mass to less than a half a pound per day instead of 2.2 pounds per day. Now, remember, these numbers are just estimates based on some math. Observations in humans indicate that some humans will lose up to a pound per day in lean mass during prolonged fasting. So these are reflecting the minimal glucose requirements. Either way, what we can say is because we have ketogenesis, we are able to burn through far less muscle mass during extended fasting. Since the loss of lean mass during fasting is what causes you to die, humans can fast for much longer periods of time without ill consequences and at least without death because we have the process of ketogenesis. So why do we make ketones? to spare lean mass during periods of fasting. Eventually, we'll get to look at benefits of the ketogenic diet. But it's important to realize that the physiology of ketogenesis is being biohacked in the ketogenic diet. The true physiological purpose from an evolutionary perspective is that there's a critical survival advantage to an organism's ability to endure fasting. And this has nothing to do with the health benefits of fasting that we talk about now, and it has everything to do with the fact that throughout the history of the world, all organisms have been subject to periodic deprivation of food because sometimes food is abundant and sometimes it's not. And so even if most of the time you're exposed to food, and even if we need to go out of our way to fast, our ancestors were forced into fasting at least periodically. 
And if our ancestors did not have a way to endure that level of food deprivation without serious losses of lean mass, they would be at an extreme survival disadvantage. So from an evolutionary perspective, ketogenesis is an adaptation to the need to undergo periodic food deprivation. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to keep watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn or you can sign up for NWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable audio and transcripts, a rich array of hyperlinked further reading material, and forums with community and places where you can put your questions and get answers. So if you really want to own these lessons and study them and get the most out of them, sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.